0: You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science, with Dr. Simon Curtis.
1: Sponsorship for this podcast is from Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners Magnus Magnetica. I've come to Singapore on my way to Australia and taken the opportunity uh, to catch up with Paul Summer. Uh, Paul is here in Singapore and I've spent three days here. Uh, Singapore is on the equator so to say it's hot and sweltery at the moment uh, is, is no exaggeration and so that we get a clearer uh, recording we've had to turn the AC off so uh, we're not going to take too long on this. Hello Paul, how are you? Good summer, yourself? Yeah, I'm very good, all the better for being here and um, enjoying the hospitality that the Singapore Turf Club has offered me. So Paul, how did your career begin?
0: So I'm from Liverpool originally um, and I started working with horses when I was about 11 or 12 years of age and the people that had the horses at the, the question centre that I worked at were Scottish. So when I became 15, 16 years of age and I was looking for a career path. Farry was always something that was interested me, the old guy that shod their horses. It uh, wasn't an ATF, but certainly helped. I helped him take off shoes and prepare feet for the for reception of shoes and trimming, um, so that tweaked my interest. So then I started looking around for an ATF and there was an opportunity arose in Scotland, uh, in the northeast of Scotland, um, a place called Elgin. So my first boss was a guy called Geordie Henderson. Um, and I was to be his last apprentice. Unfortunately, about a year or two into my apprenticeship, he was riddled with arthritis. Really great old guy, taught me a hell of a lot about life in general, Um, but he had to retire. So then the registration council came in and they found me another ATF in Gary Hood, who, who was in Cooper in Fife. And Gary was a young guy, a young gun guy. He was really into his Shoeing and his, uh, the theory side of shoeing, possibly overlap with Geordie. Geordie was a very good uh, disciplinarian, where Gary was right into his uh, corrective shoeing and his shoeing work. So I had the best of both worlds in that sense, and that's where I started my apprenticeship up in, in Elgin, it's Cooper, and
1: Fife. So you've gone from the coldest spot on earth to the, the hottest. hottest spot. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> okay, so so what actually took you here to Singapore? What was the motivation to come here? Well, it was a,
0: a case of being in the right place at the right time. We were working with Gary. We covered air racecourse. Um, we were the farriers on duty for the race days at air course. And the clerk of the course, a, a guy called David McCarg had just been interviewed and was coming to Singapore to take over the role as general manager. And before he left to come to Singapore, he did mention to me that possibly they were looking into developing a Ferrari programme in Singapore, and would I be interested? I was 22, 23 years at at the time, just not long completed my apprenticeship. And I actually left Scotland to go back to Liverpool, my my home of, of origin, And I started up a small business there. And at that time, as most farriers are, it was getting very busy in the first two or three months. Then I got a phone call from Singapore Turf Club, asking if I would be interested and come over for an interview. That was a funny story in itself, actually. Actually, I
1: think you told me you you could have blown it. Uh, In the the, first
0: (laughs) (laughs) interview, they they called it, because Singapore is seven or eight hours in front of UK time, they called at two o'clock in the morning. And me being a bit young and brash, I hung up the phone and said, can you please phone back at a, a respectable hour? Hung up the phone and thought, I've absolutely stuffed this up. To the, to the letter, uh, about two minutes past nine o'clock in English time, they phoned me back, said, Mr. Summers, would you still be interested? So I tried to play it cool, but obviously inside it was very, very keen to come out.
1: Yeah. And how long have you been here now?
0: Since 93, so it's 26 years old. There you
1: go. I'll tell you how long it's been. Liverpool haven't won the Premier League since I left. Oh, <laughs> no, but they have won the European yeah, Euro Cup. You told me that as soon as I stepped off the plane. But um, OK, so uh, you, you just had a general interest. You were young and you wanted to travel.
0: Well, uh, my initial plan was uh, 23 years of age. I was hoping to. It was a three-year contract that they offered me, which I signed had all the intentions of doing a three-year contract, possibly going down to Australia, New Zealand, then moving around to America and the plan originally was to be back in UK by the time I was 35. Um, met a lovely woman, uh, eventually got married two years later and a year after that I had, we had twin boys. So the life changed dramatically, you know. Um, and, and, and the places evolved, we, we, you haven't been there yet, I was hoping to take you, but. We I started the old racetrack which was in Bukatimo, which was central in the island, very quintessential British, old-style British track, because obviously the British have a big influence in racing in Singapore. Uh, we relocated from there in 1999-2000, we built this state-of-the-art
1: facility that we're in at the moment at Karangin. Well, It is phenomenal, but tell us something about Singapore, because it is a fascinating country, isn't it? Singapore. Uh, I hope I get this right, it's about 25 square miles, so they call it the Little
0: Red Dot. Um, Unbelievably successful country, they broke away from Malaya in the early 60s and people said they wouldn't succeed. It's the busiest port, well it competes with Hong Kong for being the busiest port in the world. If you fly over Singapore, which Simon will do on his way out, you realise the boats off the island, it's like a car park. You've never seen so many freight boats outside. They pride themselves in turning boats around within within hours, and they're going to all parts of the world. So it's a, it's a great gateway for Europe, for the rest of Asia, Australasia. Fantastic. But the other
1: thing is, it's pretty much crime free, isn't it? It's very low crime. Wonderful social services. They've just about got it right here, haven't they?
0: And you don't really fully appreciate that until you are brought up young children. I, I've got twin boys, I um, like to think they've been brought up well, but with any young boys, they, they've always got that maybe social vices that they might get attracted to. In Singapore, you really don't see it. You, you don't get the, the drunken behaviour, maybe the drugs. The drugs. There's very stiff penalties in place for drug uh, here. And it, it makes for good, good living. If you can design and plan a city, how best you would think you would live. I think this
1: isn't that far away from it, to be honest with you. No, it's pretty good. I've been pretty impressed. I mean, my other trip here was only a couple of days. That was a long time ago, but very pleasant place to live, apart from the hot <laughs> yes. and humid weather. So so tell us, what is your position here now?
0: So now I'm the senior farrier. I have, reporting to me, eight of the farriers, um, and we have two apprentices as well. We do have an apprenticeship programme. Our farriers, with a broad church, we've hired farriers from Australia previously. We've got quite a few Kiwi farriers, and of course, we get quite a few uh, guys up from UK as well. Yeah, I occasionally supply them. To yeah, the yes, yeah, and you have done in the I'm past. Very we've very had two of your good boys come through, yeah. um, and even some of the Kiwi guys, Gary Morley in particular, he he went across to UK and worked with Jim Blotton um, and did his diploma course there. We've had your two guys obviously and one of the guys from O'Shaughnessy's as well you know so we've, we've got good young talented farriers that come off to work for
1: us and um, they need to be that to complement the team that we've got but then see i ran a big forge for a long time well when i say i ran it my brother really used to <laughs> run it so i know what it's like when you've got you know more than two farriers together and you have to organize work and it must be like that for you i mean you you must have become a person manager as well. And that's one of the hardest
0: jobs I've found. I I love showing horses, Horses, showing horses comes naturally, but dealing with people is a completely different beast. Um, And it does take a lot lot of time, it takes a lot more personal skills to work with people on on a bigger scale, dealing with people's egos, dealing with people's idiosyncrasies, and everybody's got them, every human being is different. Um, And it's just being able to extract the right thing out of them. We need people that are are willing to work in a team environment, leave their egos at the front door. Working with a team, you're always going to have somebody away on leave so people have to go around and cover for them. And you can't have guys going in there and and trash talking and talking badly about other people. It's very, very important that we uh, portray ourselves very much on a professional level. And, Yes, it's a big race course, but at the same time, it's a very small environment. If you develop yourself a bad reputation, it's very, very hard to shape. If you're in the UK and you have a dispute with one of your owners, you might go to three or four miles down the road and you, know, you deal with a different complete set of people. You're dealing with the same people on a daily basis. here, yeah. So it's very important that you establish a good reputation for yourself.
1: Yeah. Now, I had the, the, the good luck and, shall we say, to have, have a kind invite to the Stewards Cup yesterday. Cause it was race day yesterday and i went along and you were working so just tell us what your duties are on race day right so singapore
0: is probably unique you've probably got uh, in comparison hong kong possibly and um, definitely dubai whereby we're a racing center but we're also a training center as well so all the horses that race throughout the year are trained on our center so from a regulatory point of view it makes it easier that we can um, look at and manage um, different types of shoeing. Our process is that um, horses are presented to racing. If they're presented in standard plates, perfectly fine with rules and regulations. But if anything differs from the standard plate, then they have to de- put that on a declaration. So if, if it's a bar shoe or a glued-on shoe, they have to declare that. We go down and inspect it before the races. Um, just to make sure it, it confines to our, our rules of racing and then on race day itself we have two farriers on duty we have a farrier in the pre-race holding yard because horses have to be presented two hours before racing to take blood samples to make sure the drug clear then they leave that pre-race holding yard into the parade ring which is a lot more formal setting that's where you'll see the owners you'll see the trainers um, obviously, we're in the public eye, as you've seen. We've yeah. got that amphitheatre kind of uh, viewing gallery, which yeah. you were quite impressed with the amount of people out there looking at the horses. Well, I
1: was. I I like that in racing. I don't like people treating it like a casino. I like horse people to yeah. enjoy racing. Yeah. And the only reason you go and look at look at them walking around is to try and assess their condition, don't you? Exactly you know, right. That gives you a personal link to them, and yeah. I I was impressed by how many people were out there watching the horses before the race.
0: Right so that, that guy that's in the parade ring he is then more in the public eye so obviously the dress code changes slightly shirt and tie which again in this humidity can be a bit challenging and yeah. um, once the horses leave the parade ring they'll go around to the barriers so the same farrier will go around to the barriers in case there's a, a mishap before the start if there's a plate off and then once the horses jump we then become part of the pursuit team we, we join the vet in the vet vehicle and we assist If there's any kind of breakdowns or any kind of first aid that needs to be administered to a horse between the uh, jumping and and the finish line Um, which which can be slightly uh, traumatic at times but you know you once you've been in the industry for a while you do realize that these do things happen in racing and you have to deal with them Um, once the horses have passed the line uh, we then inspect the horses that have got finished uh, just to make sure that all the plates are in place if a horse has cast the plate then we then report that to the stewards and that becomes part of the stewards report. Um, obviously it might have impacted a uh, horse's performance, so it's important that the um, betting public are informed about that. Um, and we do, as I've mentioned before, we do record the amount of plates that are cast on the two surfaces, the polytrack or the grass track. And we monitor that on a, on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And if you've got one particular stable or one particular trainer that has a higher than average, we monitor the national average, which at the moment is about 1.4% of all horses cast a plate. If it's above 1.4% and is a spike and is a continual spike over a period of time, the stewards will then speak to the trainers and a letter will be sent and adjustments will have to be made. Usually when that letter is sent out, we do find there's a correction pretty rapidly.
1: I can't believe anywhere else in the world does that. As you say, maybe Hong Kong, but when you could tell me that one point four percent of horses lose a play, yeah. and we had one yesterday, didn't yes, we? We you did spotted yeah, one. Yeah, I yes. stood next yeah, to you, yeah. went down in the book. You walked across to yeah. the steward or to the steward's room yeah. and had it recorded. And for this, from the from a steward's point of view,
0: it's all about transparency. We've got a a betting public, we run the totalizer Surfers as well, so the money that goes into the tote is the money that the t- club takes out of it. So now, uh, racing integrity is very, very important. They are our clientele and racing doesn't survive if these guys don't come to racing.
1: Well I think and uh, the whole thing about Singapore is anti-corruption, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. They, they are so strong on that in all departments, so it's no wonder the Turf Club it's just as strong on it. So I, I found it fantastic and, and fascinating. All right, let, let's just move on um, to the fact that you're in, I think you're one degree above the equator. So you couldn't be much more equatorial. Um, hot and sweaty here, I suppose, every day of the year. Are there any particular conditions that you've noticed here that you wouldn't particularly see in, shall we say, you know, a North European or a, a North, North American um, climate? Well uh, we've seen a case, well we've seen
0: two cases actually, one of one the races yesterday and we've seen the, the, the actual bone structure of horse that we've looked at uh, previous months at back and we get a, uh, a disease here called tropical joint disease so you get formation of bony growth over and around the fetlock and to the naked eye it, it's,
1: it's... Well you wouldn't think the horse could be sound, or sound. I don't know that to the naked eye both radiographically yes. and cadaver-boiled-out specimens. I mean, these are like horror stories from the past. Exactly right. Exactly. You wouldn't, so we're going to put up a couple of pictures when this podcast comes out mm. right? because I think it will blow people's minds that yes. a horse can be sound with that amount of bone growth. And as you've seen, we've got very stringent
0: um, regulatory procedures in place. So pre-race, every horse is inspected by the vets. They have to be trotted up for the vets. And if the vets have got any query about horse's soundness, they get withdrawn. So we've seen a horse in the pre-race holding yard that obviously had this degenerative tropical joint disease. They passed the the vet inspection, they raced. I I think and I honestly believe when the ossification process starts, there's obviously inflammation and there's a little bit of pain. Once that ossification process has stopped and you've got the bony growth, it doesn't seem to affect performance, which is absolutely bizarre. It's yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it must be a little bit like sidebone. Exactly, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's only during the formation yeah. process that they say is lamous. Okay, well, th- I mean, the other thing, and we discussed it in the seminar that I gave today, uh, was about canker and how, yeah. uh, you know, I was always taught that the, the more tropical climates had more canker, and you confirmed that. Yes, yes, you? we've had one case up at the riding school, which was, uh,
0: Again, you've seen the vet departments and the the, the the vets that we've got available to us, and um, it was a really really trying case. And we they went through the whole procedures where we did an operation, we stripped it back as far as we possibly can, administered the hospital plates. Treatment was was absolutely to the letter of what was meant to be done, um, and it was took a long long time to, to get on top of. But it, yes, you do see it a lot more here than probably what you'd see it maybe in the UK or something. Yeah, there'd
1: be, there'd be lots of farriers in the UK that wouldn't have ever seen cancer. And as I said to you, I recently went to Finland, they'd never seen cases, yeah. so it yeah. may be the colder and more northern yeah. Yeah. Uh, protects you. Alright, let's, let's move on to training, because you mentioned earlier that you have a couple of apprentices on the go at the moment, but what is, should we say, the structure of apprentice training here?
0: In Singapore, every young male below 23 has to do national service it's a two-year compulsory thing nobody can get out of it so we bring young guys in that have actually completed the national service from one point of view you get a blank canvas to work for you get disciplined men because they have been through an army program so they come to us when they're about probably a little bit more of a mature student 2021 and then we we have a training program that we try as much as we possibly can to mirror the diploma examination you do in UK. We looked around um, obviously where we are in terms of ge- geography and that the nearest training program that we could get was Racing Victoria. So previously the last few batches of apprentices have gone through the Racing Victoria certificate under the RPL system which was recognition of prior learning. So we had Peter Stratford and Colin Smith come out. And do a one-off examination to recognize the work that they've done previously and then the latest batch the two guys that we saw on Saturday show also at the riding school uh, Fazley and Hadiyah they went through the modular system uh, through NMIT North and Melbourne Institute of Tate so each year they had to do the modules I through that process I took the level four examination which made me a training and assessor so I could sign off on the modules so they went through the module system, and then at the end of the four years, Colin Smith from uh, NMIT, which is now Melbourne Polytechnic, he came over and did a four-day examination, which was uh, full concave shoes on the foot, as you would do in a diploma examination. They had to make a range of shoes, be able to fabricate shoes, be able to forge weld, be able to MIG weld some aluminium. Um, they did a theory test. And they also did a, an oral test as well, and we were very, very pleased with the results that came back, as, as I think you've shown the evidence of. Yeah. Four or five of the modules were above industry standards you know. So Colin left pretty happy with what we've achieved
1: yeah. here. So, so although you don't have many apprentices, but you are giving them a really good training. And I, you know, I saw them. Uh, well, I didn't see those boys plating, but I've seen the plating, I've seen the hot shoeing, uh, shoe making. They have a full range of skills. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and welding, apparently. Quite, <laughs> quite a few modes of welding. of contention, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we mentioned earlier about the mixture here, and of course the Singaporeans speak English as their unofficial first language, don't yeah. they? But just over the border we've got Malaysia, and you have a lot of Malays here as sizes or grooves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to test your Malay, because you've been here long enough and you should have learnt some Malay. So I'd like you to say, please take the horse back, I've finished. So what we'd say there in my pigeon Malay, which is not the fun best, but it's,
0: it gets me by, is Balak Kampung, Kuda, Habis, kasi."
1: And I wouldn't know whether that's good Malay or not, <laughs> but anyway, I, I knew you'd know some, so that's great. Now, Paul, you've said how long you've been here, and you've said what age you came here, so we can work out that you're just about 50. What are your future plans? Well,
0: at the moment, as I mentioned previously, I've got twin boys. Yeah. Um, they are studying at university in the UK at the moment. Because i have been outside of the UK for so long, they don't get home status, even though the British passport holders. So financially, I'm paying the university fees at the moment, which is put a big hole in my pocket. But once the two boys are off the books which won't be too long f- far away um, I'm, I'm relatively commitment free in terms of finances so my, my biggest plan I did mention previously that I said my apprenticeship in Scotland and you laugh because we're going from hot to cold eh, cold to hot yeah. I'm planning to go back to cold actually I would love to go back to Scotland and build a home and I've got a book over there actually I, I'm big into building these eco homes and being self-sufficient
1: and that's, that's the, the long-term thing. That's, that's the plan. ambition. Well, I, I hope you fulfill that, Paul. That's a, that's a great thing to have an ambition in. All right, this is the point we come to the deep philosophical question that you've had no lead in as to what it is. But it's a very simple question. I, I just wondered what you think is the most important thing you've learned in life? Uh, be humble, I think. I, I mean, a
0: lot of people, this is generally speaking, come to Singapore as expatriates. And they leave their country of origin, they come to a country where they're on decent wages, half a housing allowance, they get ideas above themselves, you know, and it's sometimes the local people on the ground, that have a bad impression of the way these imperialist white men, if you like, you know, and I think it's very important that when you come to a country, you make sure you learn people's traditions, learn people's values the way people see and see the world differently from us you know and I think that's important that we we get to know these people and and live their lives as opposed to impose
1: our will on them I think think that's very important. Well that's that's I think a great philosophy and I can see that you carry it out here because I can see how well you get on with all the you know the guys and just interacting with the vets and the owners and the trainers and and uh, the other thing is uh, enjoying all the cultural differences here yeah. because the food is fantastic, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you can have absolutely. any food in the world here. So, look, Paul, you've been, you've been great. You've given me a wonderful three days. I'm, I'm really grateful to what you've done and I'm especially grateful for you taking the time out for this podcast. Uh, I know it will be very popular, so thank you very much. Most welcome. Thanks, Paul. We'd like
0: to thank Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email horse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.